I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. My guest today is someone who has held his camera to the furthest corners of the world to give you and I a glimpse into the lives of vanishing tribes and indigenous cultures. Jimmy Nelson has dedicated his life to finding beauty. Although if you ask him, his journeys were all about finding something that was always with him, himself. It took him over 40 months of traveling through China to produce his first large format book, Literary Portraits of China, a book that became a worldwide hit. A collection of Jimmy's photos, Before They Pass Away, was then published in 2013, and in 2016, he and his team launched the Jimmy Nelson Foundation, a foundation that aims to foster appreciation for cultural diversity and to connect people from all over the world. I am a huge fan of Jimmy's work, and I can't tell you how long I have been waiting for this conversation. Jimmy, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for that very grand introduction. So, Jimmy, when we were preparing for this, I told you about so many questions that I wanted to ask. But somehow, knowing you, I feel I do better for everyone if I just stay quiet and let you tell your story as you would wish to tell it. I mean, pick a starting point, any starting point that you like, and just tell us what made Jimmy Nelson. You introduced me at the beginning as a photographer. I have difficulty with that. Again, not to contradict you. I use a camera. I have done since I'm 17. Nowadays, I use a multitude of mediums. Let's say me and my team use a multitude of mediums. That makes me sound very advanced and technologically proficient. I'm not. I have a group of very loving, yet far younger people around me who facilitate me on this journey. It came out of using these mediums to deep curiosity goes beyond a curiosity, it's a need to find a sort of a life source, a blood, a flow to feel alive, a desperate need. I use these mediums with myself and my team to lovingly, indulgently, romantically respect, cherish and present the world's last indigenous cultures on the grandest, most celebratory stage imaginable. This causes a lot of discussion, but there's a reason for it and I stand so strongly behind that reason because what I've experienced and I've seen and I've shared and I've managed to become part of is a treasure that goes beyond most people's wildest imagination. I went so deep to connect with it, but it wasn't about making the picture. It was about being seen. It was about being alive and it was about being not being judged, about being accepted. And I think in my case about being loved very simply about being loved. We're very deep, very quickly. I will take you there. And it was introduced with photography. The photograph is that, let's say I'm building a cake. The photograph is the cherry on top. It has to be the shiniest, roundest, richest, 
sweetest cherry that you could ever imagine, but it's sitting on top of a cake of 50 layers of sponge and cream and jam. The life journey is creating that cake. And until all the layers of experience are there, do I understand why I put that cherry on top? It's looking to create the definitive cherry, but having all those experiences of being alive, alive in the truest sense of the word, and alive brings it into context of your question, is happiness. It's interesting, I was online the other day, I was listening, and I know you've worked with and next to the Dalai Lama, and this sort of idea that we in the developed world have become overly obsessed, we've kind of lost the plot and believe happiness is this external existence. And that, in actual fact, it has nothing to do with how big the car, the house, the camera totally. is. It has to do with this deep, deep, deep discovery of one's own wealth. I, by default, have had the weirdest, the most painful, but at the same time, the most wonderful life you can imagine for the last 52 years. Because I was pushed into a journey, into a place to discover the potential of what happiness could be like no other. And I'll take you back a little bit in time now. I spent the first seven years of my life living in the developing world. My father was a very weird autistic geologist who spoke about 10 languages, previously lived for 10 years in the Antarctic with husky dogs because he can communicate with animals better than he can with human beings. He never actually touched me, said he loved me, but he was very knowledgeable of the world's Earth structure. He loved the planet. I remember him telling me that, and he wanted to understand all its layers, if I can use the metaphor of the cake again. As regards the people who lived in and on it, he had no idea, let alone himself. But anyway, he took me with him. I lived, and this is an overly romanticized way of referring to it, like Mowgli for the first seven years of my life. <laughs> okay. He took me every year to a different developing country, West Africa, South America, Papua New Guinea, Central Asia, Pakistan. And before the age of seven, and again, this is not to be in any way self-congratulatory, I think I've seen more countries than most people ever will do in a lifetime. It was a very rich, extraordinary experience for a child, very open. And I, and using that sort of Mowgli metaphor, I sort of ran around, ran the world, embracing it with big open eyes. And I was accepted everywhere I went. At the age of 17, in a very classic way, my parents said, well, you have to learn to read and write. So they, in all their wisdom, sent me to the UK, which is where I had an English passport from. And I went to a boarding school for the next 10 years in Northern England on the border of Scotland. It was a Catholic Jesuit boarding school. There were 1,000 children from the age of six, going up until 18, and 400 priests. It was an institution, a classic institution. There were a number of them. But it was essentially a prison, prison slash seminary disguising itself as a school. And within that environment, this was obviously the 70s. I was born in 67. There were a number of the priests who could essentially get away with whatever they wanted. They had every year a ripe selection of very naive, pure, innocent young children who came in, who were very quickly and I have to be careful how far I go into detail, abused to the worst imaginable way possible. They used the authority of religion as fear on top of us so that we were uh, intimidated to the fact that we would never communicate, we would never share it, and we lived in fear, extreme fear. And that wasn't the acts that they imposed on us, which themselves were bad, but it was this idea that as a seven or an eight-year-old child, you never knew when you would be chosen. And you lay in these rooms late at night, 
and randomly they would come and take you out and perform rituals all under the guise of a religion and it was terrifying you didn't understand what was happening you didn't share it i tried very briefly with my parents at the beginning but i couldn't put it into context so you close down as a human being physically you survive but you have no emotions you feel nothing and i always use when we're talking now so i'm trying to visualize it it's a bit like most of us have our fingers plugged into the wall that's the electricity you take your fingers out you feel nothing you function as a human being but you don't develop emotion because you don't have emotions you cannot feel you have to block you them, feel what you went through and try to put it into the context you couldn't survive quite simply mm. then i was told i was stupid because i hadn't been to school for 7 years prior to that i'm quite dyslexic very creative somewhat androgynous so you name it lots of labels so i was quite sort of radically ostracized within this environment you're alone so you go from this very pure open trusting existence in the world to this lockdown to use a sort of contemporary phrase utter 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 lockdown as a child i survived as a lot of people do when they're in trauma and i got to the age of 16 and also i find it also very interesting in the context of what i do workwise because of a lot of traditions and the cultures i go to they're very very heavily connected to rituals and these rituals are the transition from childhood to adulthood and i remember when i was slowly becoming an adult and i was 16 and i'd gone to my parents in west africa i was sick with cerebral malaria and i remember telling them keep me here don't send me back to that hell and again they sent me back and i arrived traumatized ill with cerebral malaria temperature 41 degrees centigrade and utterly destroyed and they kindly gave me this pot of the wrong antibiotic i went to bed woke up in the morning and i woke up with no hair at the age of 16 so i'd already decided i hated my body and i'll be very frank i even considered cutting off my genitalia that's how bad it was oh, wow. i hated my head because i'd been told that i was stupid then you go and look in the mirror and you visit you see an alien i mean a 16 year old child who's already broken is confronted by a bald face in one night it was it's called alopecia totalis it's complete hair loss out of shock and trauma so the trauma of the medicine the temperature the malaria and the fear of being there the drama of being alone so you're confronted you look into the mirror and you go oh jesus again icing on the cake now that's all i need now i'm ugly you know i felt ugly i they treated me so ugly but what happened was actually quite interesting you sort of suddenly well i'm on my own i knew i was on my own but i'm now treated by everybody my peers ostracized me because i looked different this is again the 70s in the uk and i was kicked out of this institution because they said i'd shave my head because i was being rebellious and i lived with my blind grandmother for 2 weeks went back to the institution took my clothes off in the room of the high priest as he called himself and said well look i've got no hair you know i haven't shaved off anything it's fallen out because of stress i remember him looking at me and said well you know you've got a bit of catching up to do he didn't ask why it's fallen out he didn't apologize there was no explanation just carry on I completed my A levels at the age of 17 and I thought well I've got to solve this because I don't want to live. I so don't like my self and existence. And as a child I had an avatar and that was Tintin and Tintin Cowfield we call him in Holland. And I knew Tintin's journeys inside and out and as kids do today who are sort of locked online in the sort of digital fantasy my fantasy was Tintin. 
I think Professor Gerolitis even looked a little bit like my father, with sort of toss of hair. And, uh, I had <laughs> okay. my imaginary dog, Snowy, with me. And I knew his journeys. And I thought Tintin was my savior. He'd saved me throughout my childhood because at night when we went to bed in fear, I'd close my eyes and dream I was on Tintin on an adventure because he was the only person I could empathize with and connect with similar to my childhood. And I literally, when I was 17, I left school. I didn't tell anybody. I worked on a building site for two months, mixing cement. And I bought a one-way ticket to China and went up to northwest China to the border of Tibet and started to walk. And I decided that the only place on the planet that maybe there was some salvation, maybe there was a way to re-feel something as a human being in Tibet because... Tintin had been in Tibet and he'd played with a lot of bald children. I remember that. I didn't know anything about Buddhism. I didn't really know where Tibet was. Again, this is the sort of mid-80s, so there was no internet, no guidebooks. Tibet had been shut for 30 years. And as a kid, a crying kid, I disappeared off and started walking. And I walked and I walked and I walked. By default, I spent two years in Tibet, between the ages of 17 and 19. And I arrived and Tibet was in a war. It had 660 functioning monasteries prior to my arrival. When I arrived in 1986, there were far, three left over. They had lived in a war zone for 30 years. The rest of the world closed their eyes to it because for economic reasons, and there's no need to go into that. And because of my naivety, I managed to get into a place nobody had been to for years. And I found a group of people who were kinder, softer, gentler, richer, more humble, more beautiful aesthetically than I'd ever met in my life. And they saw me. Now, I didn't learn Tibetan. They picked me up. They fed me. They guided me. They taught me. I became one of them. And in those two years, I sort of started to breathe again. They didn't judge me for my appearance. They didn't poke me. They didn't laugh at me. They didn't tell me I was stupid. They didn't hurt me in any way. They stroked me. And... I'd taken a very old camera with me. My father had given it to me. It was his only gesture. It was a little old Russian camera called the Zenit B with four apertures and four shutter speeds. I'd never taken a picture of my life and four rolls of Kodakolor gold film. For those of you who are listening who know what that is, 35 millimeter roll film. I had no idea. And I remember halfway through the journey, I really want to remember these human beings because they've given me my life back or they've given me the beginning of my life. I don't want to make a happy snap with them. I don't want to make a selfie with them. I don't want to make a reportage or any journalistic. I want to paint their face in the kindest, most gentlest, the goldest, the softest light that I can imagine, because that's how I felt I want to remember them. So in those two years, I rationed myself to those four rolls of film. So I didn't photograph myself. I didn't photograph the Portala Palace. It was just the people I met on the way. And I remember spending two, three weeks, the first cover of a magazine I got was of a girl I fell deeply in love with. I don't think she fell in love with me. And it took me a month to gain the courage to ask to make that one image of her. But it's still today a stunningly beautiful picture because it's made with so much compassion, so much love, so much adoration. And I came back at the age of 19, much to everybody's disbelief. I'd been in contact with nobody because I was punishing everybody for the pain and I had a few pictures, and they were subsequently published. And somebody said, well, you know what? You can become a photographer. This was 1988. And I thought, well, you know what? I raised two fingers and I said, that's what I'll do. So I disappeared, and I disappeared with a camera. But it wasn't the camera that interested me. It was, wow, I can connect with human beings 
And then I went even further. I was obviously still in stress and trauma. So I spent the next four or five years in war zones. You described me at the beginning as a photojournalist. I wasn't a photojournalist. I was a broken human being with a camera disappearing into other people's pain to alleviate my own. And sitting in a bunker in Afghanistan for a year, disappearing off into Yugoslavia, surrounded by death, it alleviated the mind. And I justified it by making a picture. And that's how the journey began. And in a weird way, today, I'm 52, I'm still in that process of trying to dare to look into a mirror and love myself, dare to look in a mirror and accept myself, everything that I've felt. And I'm slowly getting there. But it's the obsession of using a camera, and I now use a 10 by 8 clay film camera, the old cameras Amsel Adams used to use, because it's not about the quantity of pictures, it's about the quality. And if I make that one picture, that one definitive connection with another human being who is at the other end of the world, who is presented in such glory and power and might, but has nothing materially, but has a richness that goes beyond your and my wildest imagination. I can hang that on a wall and I can touch somebody in the developed world and make them cry and make them feel what I felt. Then that's a life worth living. And that's why I do what I do. So it's all about survival, my survival. It's all about the survival I'm about to start crying of human beings. When you've been the living dead and you've done everything to feel validity, you have no idea the effort you put into it. So it's not about photography. It's about dignity. It's about feeling value and about respect. So people come up to me and they go, oh, Jimmy, it's amazing. You make contact with these people. It's the easiest thing to spread. If you put yourself naked and vulnerable at the feet of others and say, help me. I'm six foot two, white and bald. And wherever I go to these communities, all they do is pick me up and hold me. Because I take myself there as nobody. I have relative, I mean, we all have an ego, but I sit on the ground and I say, I look up to you with more respect than you have no idea. And there's no language involved. It's all physicality and emotion. And there's not one community anywhere that doesn't look after me and take me in. Then you make a connection, a connection of respect through empathy and vulnerability. And then you get out the camera and you say, I need to paint you. I need to remember you because I want to share how beautiful you are with the rest of the world. And that's the journey. That's an amazing, amazing journey. Isn't this the journey that we are all about? I mean, isn't this what we, why we're here? In a weird, weird way. Yes. And, and I often struggle with this. I have three kids and they're in their early 20s. They live this very campered life here in Amsterdam. And I often struggle that you have to make that journey rich, to make that journey profound, to touch. It's not a fact, it's not a finite, but to touch on very privileged occasions, that feeling of happiness. You have to go to the darkest end of the spectrum to understand it, to put it into context. That's so And to feel the fragility of life, the privilege that we have as human beings for this millisecond of time as a piece of dust in the history of the universe and this planet. And that, that's the journey. By being pushed so far off the human spectrum for what it is to feel alive and struggling so hard to get back to it, there are occasions when you resonate. I resonate with utter bliss. And that is being in the world's last relatively untouched natural surroundings with the human beings who live there 
in harmony with themselves, with one another, with their culture, with their traditions, with their natural environment, then they are not under the illusion that they're any better than anything around them. They're part of Mother Nature. They're part of the planet. They worship it. They're all animists. And to experience that and stand there with them in this cathedral of Mother Nature, culture and tradition is utter bliss. It's utter bliss. Why then are we living here? Why have we created our own prison? Why? Because we are terrified to listen to the silence. We're terrified to be in the present. We're terrified to, in the Buddhist context, to go within. That's extremely hard work. I was forced to go there. I'm not overly intelligent or overly capable, but I was forced by the choice of wanting to live to investigate myself in the most extreme way imaginable. I think most of us, we, we mollycoddle ourselves with cotton wool. We surround everything with concrete so we feel nothing. And we're under this delusion that we're in control. We're in control of nothing. Absolutely nothing. Look what's happening around the world at the moment. It has nothing to do with all due respect uh, virus, which is appalling and tragic for those who have suffered from it. It has to do with fear. It has to do with the realization that as developed human beings, we're not in control. We're not in control. Have you ever had any resistance when you went to the furthest corners of the world? Has it always been acceptance? It's always been acceptance. Amazing. There's an enormous amount of time, an enormous amount of patience, an enormous amount of humility, vulnerability, fragility in that process. But if you invest enough up front, you always make that connection. This is a very childish story. Again, we're talking, so I want to sort of visualize it. I was asked this question by a couple of thousand teenagers not so long ago in the States, in a school in Brooklyn. And they, they asked me the same question, have you ever been rejected? And why do you make your life so complicated by using such a big old-fashioned analog camera when you can run in using an iPhone and somebody shouted, spray and pray? <laughs> why make it so difficult? And I said, well, I make it difficult because I want to make an investment. I want to make an investment of a human connection. It's not about the picture. They didn't quite get it. So I asked the class, or it was a large auditorium, I said, okay, come on, kids. You know, what's the most important thing for you? Let's take it out of context. Somebody shouted out, I want a girlfriend. I'm obsessed with, and I said, okay, let's look upon them those ways. Okay, I'm going to give you tomorrow two options for that girlfriend. The one option is you can run onto your school square and you can kiss everybody. The whole of the school square within that lunch break, there'll be no rejection, there'll be nothing. Whatever you want is possible. It's a free-for-all, total acceptance. The other option is you're only allowed to kiss one person for one second on the cheek in the last minute of the last hour of the last day of the week. Which option do you choose? And he laughed. He said, well, obviously I go for one. And the whole auditorium laughed. And they all said, yeah, we choose one. And then they pointed at me and said, you're obviously going to go for two because you're old and slow. I said, well, I'm not that old and I'm not slow at all. I'm very fit. But you are right. I do go for option two. And do you know why I go for option two? Because it's not the kiss that matters. It's the journey. It's the hunt. It's the foreplay. It's the seduction. It's the potential rejection. It's the focus. It's the choice. It's being chosen. And if after all of those emotions are complete, that kaleidoscope of experiences align, and you manage to kiss that one second and that one cheek, you explode emotion beyond your wildest imaginations. 
And that always happens. It always happens. But you invest. You invest and you go right down to the troughs of everything that you feel and lay it on the plate in front of you. And when you do, it's one second that is the joy of life itself. I take it to stage further. I'm in Papua New Guinea. I'm with a community that has never been photographed before. I've been invited there, which is the biggest privilege that you could ever... So I haven't received any awards, but I've had some outrageously humble invitations. I'm with the Kaluli, deep in the jungle in Papua New Guinea. It's taken me two weeks to walk there. You arrive in this village of one of the most untouched, beautiful, rich communities you could ever... I mean, they have these headdresses that are one and a half meters tall, and they paint their bodies. And, and it's really like arriving in Shangri-La. You arrive in these sort of plateaus in the jungle, and they're cleared, and there's mist, and there's toucans flying over your head. And out come this community, and the Papua New Guineans are, are celebrated for their aesthetic beauty. You spend two weeks sitting on the floor waiting, slowly connecting, eating worms, laughing, becoming one. One week taking a portrait, because you sort of make this one-on-one -on -one contact. You use the whole community to hold reflectors. So you sort of create this sort of natural studio of light where everybody's involved. And then you're one in a way. It's all about celebration. Then it gets very exciting because all the other villagers here, there's this crazy guy with some legs and a bald head who sits behind a box worshipping us all day, saying, you're amazing, you're amazing, you're amazing. And then you get carried away thinking, everybody kind of understands me now. I have this grand vision, if you can imagine a composer. I want to go into the jungle. It's a two-day walk. I know there's a waterfall in the other valley, and I want to take five of this community with me, and I want to present them in front of this waterfall like you've never seen before. This alignment of light, nature, human beings, aesthetic. And you get there, it takes you two days to walk there. Then it takes another day to build planks or logs, put them in the river so they can all stand in a safe and an aesthetic manner. They're ready at three o'clock in the afternoon. The light is very harsh in the jungle, so you need to wait until just before dusk, those five minutes before it goes dark, and everything's aligned, and they're all standing in front of you. I'm using a big old analog plate from camera. I need a shutter speed of three seconds because the light is very low, but it's very beautiful, it's very painted. There's mist rising from the river. Because we've been doing this for weeks now, they stand still. It's incredible the focus they have. They are utterly in the moment. They don't know what I'm doing with the camera, but they feel seen, they feel acknowledged. They're even worshiped by me. And you stand there and everything is aligned. And you put the film in the camera, and you press the shutter for three seconds. One, two, three. And the water flows and it paints the picture and they're standing sharp. You cannot see the picture because it's on an analog camera and a plate. I have to wait until I get back to Amsterdam. But I know, I know because I felt it. It's there because it's that one picture. I explode because I know I've created a score. If you imagine a music. You know, you can take a picture on an iPhone, which is one violin. I've used this, the most complicated camera imaginable. It's like a thousand violins and a choir in a visual context, and it's aligned. And I know one day I'll be able to put that score, that orchestra on the wall, and people will see it and will feel what I've felt. But that reaction also has to be delayed because it will be a number of years before it's in the museum. But in the meantime, I'm in the moment. I'm there. I'm connected. I'm deep in the jungle, on my own in the middle of Papua New Guinea with people who I can't speak their language of, but we see each other, we respect each other. 
We can't walk back to the village because it's dark. There are snakes everywhere. So we collapse on the rocks by the river. They light a fire. There are no beds. There are no pillows. There's no official food. There's just the kaluli, me, the stars, the jungle, them singing, the crackling of the fire. And I promise you, and I'm not exaggerating, the sleep I have there is one of the deepest sleeps I've ever had in my life because I feel safe. I've invested everything into that experience. I put my life, my soul, my dignity, everything on the line. And it connects. You get that kiss. And in that place, you fall into the deeper sleep that's imaginable. Now, technically speaking, there's no protection. There's no house. There's no bed. There's no tent. There's no pillow. There's no packed lunch. There's nothing. But what there is is everything. And then you're alive. And that's what being happy is. Have you ever gone through all of this and then the picture didn't work out? You always get a picture, whether it's to the aesthetic standards that you're aspiring to, not. I'd say I still haven't made it. Does it devastate you if you go back to Amsterdam? No, 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 no. It's the opposite. It gives me an excuse to go back again. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's a little bit, you know, if you're talking about, we're getting, again, we're using metaphors. And I talk a lot to kids and I'm trying to find ways to explain it. It's about, we often look into the river, and the river is the reference to flow. I've jumped into the river, and I'm full on in it now. And I come across rapids and meanders and waterfalls, and I'm hurtling down the mountains. I will never reach the coast. There is no coast. There is no end to where this river is going to take you. And that's the thrill. The day you realize that you won't arrive on a beach and have a pina colada and have a palm tree waiting for you, the journey's on, it will remain on. So I will never make the definitive picture, but that's the thrill knowing the search for it is the happiness in the moment. That is so exciting. There won't be enough time for me to fulfill the curiosity and experiences that I'm trying to achieve. You know where I disagree with you, Jimmy? One thing that you say, <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I'll tell you this and I'll tell you it with a whole heart. You sometimes refer to yourself and say, I'm not that intelligent or capable to do this or to do that. I have had to go through it as a young teenager and so on and so forth. I'll tell you openly, and please don't take this. I am giving you a compliment. I'm just saying the truth. I think you're one of the most capable people I have ever met. I think what you've just described is the level of His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. Believe it or not. Because the journey of life is not about getting that high school degree and then rushing through life to get that MBA and then making the external, acquiring those external stimuli in an attempt to find your path, your journey, your happiness. It's that journey inward. And to start that journey on your own, on your own, Jimmy, this is... I'm still on my own. And I think that's also the realization you're always on your own. You arrive on your own, go, you gather things, people, objects, experiences around you. But you have to be, accept you're on your own. And I also think if you put it into context with what's happening now in the world, it's by default. Let's run that parallel to what happened to me as a kid. Lockdown, extreme abuse, fear beyond your wildest imagination. But the choice in that time, I want to live. I really want to live because I saw the light for the first seven years of my life. I saw the beauty. 
I saw the dignity. I saw the compassion. I was six, seven, didn't really understand it. So I know it's there. I know it's there. I'm going to do everything, everything in my power to get back to it. Everything. You look at where we are now here today, and we're all in lockdown. We're all in fear. We have no idea what's going to happen. But that is beautiful because maybe, maybe, and I really scream from the top of every mountain that I've sort of maybe human beings will wake up and realize where we are and what we've done. If every single young person now doesn't make it their task in life, whoever they are, whatever they do, whether they become the next astronaut or they spend their life collecting rubbish from the street, it has to be with the purpose of loving what we already have, consolidating what we already have, cherishing this planet that was around here long time before us and many other species and will be around here a long time after we're gone. And the weird thing is when one goes on that journey, and by default, I'm on it, and reinvests in a reciprocal kind of way, a love back to what there already is, it is one of the most richest experiences you can ever have and ways of being. Materially, it's not. But believe you me, and the compliment you just gave me, I cherish and I say thank you, but life I have is wonderfully rich. But it's rich in the most profound way possible. And the pictures I make, I'm trying to use them as a catalyst for people to wake up. So in a strange way, what's happened now, great, maybe, maybe, maybe people will feel the fear. People feel the pain. And in the developed world, we have so much. Oh, please. We have so much, too much. We don't need a fraction of it. We just need to be happy and healthy. We can be that way. Yeah, because we don't need the kisses to every child, to every girl in the schoolyard. You just need that one. And that may take a lifetime to find, but you just need that one. There's another story. It's an extremely important story I want to share with you, if you can indulge me. I'm looking at a picture I have on my studio over here of the Mundari in South Sudan. Now, the Mundari are tall, elegant, powerful, naked, they run around the desert. They've been living in a bubble for the last 50 years because there's a civil war going on between North and South. I got there by default a few years ago. And I first arrived and I, again, I judged. Typical. Naked people, they don't have anything to eat. They're just sitting in the dust. And I stayed and I stayed and I went through that process of one and a half months. Halfway through that, I had a lot of difficulty still with men because of what happened to me as a child. They would come up to me. They told me to take my clothes off. And they took me into the river and they started to wash me. So these big, tall, one meter, 92 meter men scrubbing me clean because they could see I was suffering from the sun. Then they took me into the sand. They rubbed this ash into my body for an hour and a half. And then they started to feed me. Now we'd run out of food. All they eat is the blood and milk of the cows they have. They ritually slaughter them once a year. So they don't actually have any food substantial food as you and I can imagine it. They have no clothes. They live in the desert. But these people, the kindness, the gentleness, the sincerity that they shared with me, and then after you've been with them one and a half months and you end up walking around naked, drinking cow's milk and blood and being washed by these men every morning in a river, and you go start going to a place where I started to feel stronger. I started to feel so connected. I started to realize there's so little that I need to be happy, also to be healthy. 
to be loved, to laugh, to share. And that was a very radical experience because perhaps of the whole, my whole existence, it needs to be radical, but you have no idea that the minimalism of their existence, but how rich they were. It's a wonderful experience. And then you feel happiness because you connect with other human beings in the most extraordinary way. By disconnecting from all that we falsely believe is going to make us happy and connecting with the reality of who we are as humans. Yeah, yeah. And what's happening at the moment, we have to wake up and we will move on, but it's how we move on. And it could be beautiful. And this whole idea that the whole world is suffering in one way or another, strangely, by default, the majority of the indigenous communities are fine. <laughs> and they're laughing and they're saying, you know, we're healthy. Yeah. We have the strong bodies. We've survived everything from HIV to Ebola to you name it. The ones who are like, we're strong. We're not all 150 kilos with a cigarette in one hand and a beer in the other and stuff full of sugar. And all of a sudden upset, we're all dying in, in great numbers because we're unhealthy. The only thing that's unhealthy for us is our government's now be shutting down borders so we can't get food to our markets. But technically, we're actually fine. You're the ones who are now suffering. You're the ones who are now rats in the cages, which you created around yourselves. Do you feel that you have reached the target of your journey? Good question. I've, on occasions, touched pure happiness. I know it. Weirdly, I have never done any narcotics. I don't smoke, I don't drink any alcohol, but I'm looking for a high. <laughs> I'm looking for that high we're all looking for. That true, true connection with something, and I've touched it on occasions. I remember as a child, I was terrified because I thought if I ever do manage to get there, I want to know how I got there. And if it's only once or twice in my life, I'm willing to spend 40 or 50 years getting to that feeling because at least I'll have earned it. And I'll know how to understand it. when I see the light referring to a Beatles song and the Lucy in the Sky of Diamonds. Is it sustainable? I don't know. Is there a finite end to it or a beginning to it? I don't think so either. It's just certain moments in time that resonate. I often describe it, people say to me, oh, Ginny, but if you've come across the most wonderful people and places on the planet, why don't you stay? I say, well, there isn't one place. It's a passage of time. And every now and again, I touch on that place. But that place is often strangely high up in the sky at night on a 13-hour flight in the silence with no Wi-Fi. And I've just left Papua New Guinea, where I've been living for two months. And I'm arriving back in Holland. And I'm reminiscing and reflecting on the adventures I've had and cannot wait to get back to my home base, which is here. And it's that ultimate moment of objectivity, that moment where you're sitting in the middle of the seesaw, the fulcrum, the two extremes of my continual bipolar existence. And I see both as clear as the light of day. And I love both and I cherish both for everything that's good about them and, unfortunately, everything that's bad about them in both worlds. It's not all a bed of roses in South Sudan or in the Marquesa and from Papua New Guinea. But there are aspects of it which are golden. And those have, if it's possible, to be aligned with parts of our world, which are also golden. Look at the way we're now communicating. It's wonderful. We're talking potentially with the world here. That's marvelous. But it's what we're talking about. And that should be from the other world. And it's about this realignment. And that's the place of happiness. You sit there in the silence. I'm often crying because I've watched sort of Out of Africa for the 85th time and watched <laughs> Mel Street lift a hand up to hold Robert Redford and hope that one day I find true love. So maybe that's also part of the journey. And in that moment of true, true vulnerability and emotion, 
I'm often in the middle of the night and stewardesses will come up to me and say, you know, do we need to contact the pilot because I'm sobbing, but I'm actually sobbing out of happiness because I feel something. Aren't I privileged? Aren't I lucky? Isn't this the most wonderful existence briefly to have as a human being? And everything about my existence and I feel I see I have to share. And that's the obsession. And that's when one photographer becomes in a humble way, please forgive an artist, it's this utter urge to show something, to wake, to change other people's lives. I take my word back, Jimmy. You're not a photographer. I think you're a true gem. You're a true gem. I think I have invested a lifetime in the topic of happiness and contentment and finding peace. I have learned so much from you today. I will tell everyone here listening to us, roll this back and listen to it again. This has been one of the most profound lessons I have ever received. It's not about the number of kisses, it's about the journey that we find to the kiss. Thank you for the compliment, but take it into another context. Question I'm often asked, now, Jimmy, what camera should I buy? Oh, please don't ask me that again. The question you should be asking is, Jimmy, how do I learn to feel? How do I learn to feel? How do I learn to feel? Obviously, I've had to learn in the hardest way imaginable, but believe you, me, I feel it. Yeah. I feel it. And it's not the photo. I'm, I'm so alive, and it's not the photo. So forget the camera. Yeah. It's go on that journey of discovery and discover what you have and what you felt and what you want to share. Then you will come across a medium or a multitude of mediums, and that's when it will become interesting for other people because it will be so authentic. Talking about all these communities and its rituals, its beautiful rituals, and it's this transition and weirdly, one of the most beautiful rituals which has resonated with me the last few weeks ago was, again, it's about both worlds. It's my world here in Amsterdam and Papua New Guinea. And I was a few years ago with a group called the Huli Wigmen. They have yellow faces. You can see them online on my website. And they paint their faces yellow. And they have these magnificent hats made out of their hair. They're Melanesian. The hats are these afros. How they get to acquiring these hats is wonderful. When they're teenagers, they get taken into the jungle by a shaman with nothing. No clothes, no food, no nothing as a group. And for one and a half years, they have to learn to connect with the jungle, respect it, live from it, love it, and protect one another, and grow their hair into these magnificent sort of bowl-shaped forms. So they're grooming each other 24-7, but these forms protrude to the left and right of the head some 30 centimeters. So how do you sleep on the floor of the jungle for one and a half years? with hair protrusions, 30 centimeters out. So you create these structures. It's about feeling, it's about growing, it's about adapting and helping each other. Then after one and a half years, the shaman checks out all these hairdos and says, part one is achieved, back to the village. They go back, they ritualistically shave off these heads, this hair, and make them into wigs, hats. Then the shaman says, go back into the jungle and spend the next half month on your own, six months, no group, no nothing. But you have to decorate your wig, your hat, with your authenticity, with your story. Who are you? What do you feel? What's your authenticity? Then you come back. So you've become a man or a woman. You've got the wig. You've developed it. And then we'll paint your face yellow. And now you're holy. Now you're one of us. And now you're yourself. And now you're truly connected to Mother Earth that you have to spend the rest of your life worshipping because she's the one you have to protect. Two or three weeks ago, being here in lockdown in Amsterdam, and I have a son of 20, I have two daughters, and my son 
he's my only son and he's been a little bit uh, reticent to the fact that I've been away a lot and we're trying to reconnect and he's becoming a man and I was struggling with I'm a very physical person not finding enough outlets for my energy so I said sweetie can we go into the park every morning and do some pilates stretching I run a lot and he was a bit grumpy at first Three weeks ago, we started this. Every morning at seven o'clock, we're in the local park, the Vondel Park, which you may know about here in Amsterdam. At seven o'clock in the morning, one and a half hours together. And you know how we end? Lying on the grass, holding each other's hands, looking up into the trees, listening to the birds, seeing the leaves grow, which they have done over the last three weeks, feeling the rain if it rains, stroking each other's hands, me thanking him for his youth in keeping me alive, him thanking me for being around and teaching him about who I am. I thought, wow, isn't this beautiful? In a weird way, because of the lockdown, I'm going, I'm not the shaman, but I'm going with my son. He's becoming a man, back into nature and listening to it, feeling it, reconnecting to it. And I thought, this is the happiness. These are the moments of balance. That's why it's as beautiful here as it is there. You've got to be present in where you are and what you're doing. And then it can be wildly beautiful. And he was saying, I never knew the park was this beautiful, Dad. And I said, but sweetie, we've been living next to it for the last 20 years. And he says, isn't it wonderful? I said, yes, thanks to the lockdown, we can finally appreciate it. Are you saying after all of your trips around the world, you can still find that moment, you can still find that kiss, you can find that cherry on the cake in the park? If you listen to what matters to you, yes. And if it's here in Amsterdam, yes. But it's a continual process. But it's about being so awake. It's about being so alert. It's about being forced, as we have done for the last two months, to be quiet, to listen, to think, to look into the mirror, to feel your body, not run away from it, not run out from it. All these things which we're painful. And this fear, Jimmy, you're not in control. You have no idea where distance is going to take you. So enjoy this moment in time. Be grateful that you've seen the world. And if you never travel again, Jimmy, don't you dare be grumpy. What you've received is the most beautiful thing in life. And you have to do everything with every single picture. Made. And believe you me, I've had a couple of kisses over the last few years, as in the cherry on the cake, to share and show. And if you never make a picture again in the environment that you so love being in, do your very best to have find those scents in your own environment here. You know what I call this, Jimmy? I call this being alive. I'm so grateful for your presence. I'm so grateful for your inspiration. I think you've taught all of us quite a bit today. Thank you for giving me the podium to indulge, share, talk, cry. And I hope it wasn't too personal. But as I said, I obviously have a chip on my shoulder from what I experienced in my youth. And if you compare the Dutch, and I mean this with all due respect to the English, because my mother and my sister still live in the UK. But when there's anything that's painful, in the UK, I always experience, they tend to shut the curtains, have a cup of tea and talk about the weather. <laughs> in Holland, especially in Amsterdam, when there's anything painful, they open the curtains, they don't drink tea, they smoke a joint. They often tend to put on the knickers and a red light bulb and they say, well, this is life. It can be very painful, but it's reality. So let's find a way to deal with it. Thank you so much. And for all of you who joined us, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow me on social media. Search for Mogaudet slow-mo, solve for happy, or one billion happy. I know you've got a lot going on, but remember, there is always time to slow down. 
Until next time, stay happy.